these ones uh, under our care. And so we pray for grace, Lord. We pray for grace, that you would pour out grace on each of these families and on these children, and that they would come to understand you as their only hope, as their only salvation, they would trust you uh, early in their lives, and they would learn what it means to be one of your disciples. And that, that would be a blessing both for the child, but also for these parents that would be entrusted with this, uh, this job uh, to, to, to raise them up uh, as your followers. And we also pray for our church, Lord, that we would rally around these families, that we would support them, pray for them, encourage them, uh, volunteer in the children's ministry, etc., in order uh, to, to partner with them in the raising of these children uh, in Christ. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. You may be seated. We have uh, some, some gifts and a little certificate to give each of you guys. Yeah, you can if you get yep, yeah, you, you can be seated. All right. Those that are K through 6th grade are, can go also go to the class with Miss Liz. There's a lot going on down there. It's pretty awesome. And just a quick introduction. Perfect timing, Ashley. Turn around. This is Ashley Murphy. Uh, She's our children's director. And uh, so pray for her. She has a lot going on down there, um, and we greatly appreciate her work. And also, she would be, she would love to talk to you if you'd like to volunteer down in the kids area. And I think we've got even a table back there that's got some sign-up opportunities. Uh, but Ashley is the person you should talk to to find out more. Okay, all right. Thanks, Ashley. <laughs> all right, let's preach a sermon. Um, Hopefully you're finding the Bibles there down on the floor, opening those to Judges uh, chapter 6. Uh, if not, you can open it up on your phone or maybe you brought your Bible, but it's going to be helpful if you follow along. Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. If you've never found Judges before, it's okay. A lot of people here are new to the Bible. Um, we've been preaching through this book over the last few weeks, and we've been saying that uh, one of the ways to understand Judges is it's the same cycle over and over and over, actually 12 times. The, the people of Israel go through this same cycle, and it, it starts with disobedience, and then God disciplines them, and then out of that discipline, they are in distress. They cry out in their distress, and God delivers them, and then they do it again. They disobey, discipline, distress, deliverance, and this happens 12 times in the book. And right now, we're in the middle of looking at one of the judges, or one of the deliverers, I think is probably a better word, and that's Gideon. And so, so far, Gideon has himself been delivered. Uh, He has been delivered from false worship of idols, and he's been delivered to the worship of the one true God. We might call this his conversion, right? He's walked away from false worship. He's he's, um, uh, walked toward the worship of the one true God. Now what? Right now he worships the one true God. What's he supposed to do? Um, 
All he knows from his previous worship life is that he's offering sex and sacrifice to these pagan gods to try to broker a deal for a better life. And now here he's worshiping the one true God. And that's, that's definitely not how you worship the one true God. You don't broker deals with God. So now he's, he's got to figure out, what, what is it that I now do now that I am a worshiper of the one true God? And this is what we find in this text today that was just read uh, a few moments ago. And so po- possibly you, you may be asking the same thing, right? Like maybe you've become a Christian or you're thinking about becoming a Christian and you're, and you're thinking, okay, well, once that happens, once, once I'm a worshiper of Jesus, then what? What can I expect? And I actually think a lot of the things that Gideon is, is experiencing are the things that we too can expect. And I'm going to talk about four different things that we should expect if, if we are uh, worshiping the one true God. So, Judges 6, verse 33, we read this. Now, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So, first thing to expect in the daily life of the delivered is battle. Battle. Uh, It's interesting. Gideon aligns his life with the one true God, and the first thing on the list is he's he's in battle. Those of you that were here for previous sermons, you know that the, the first thing that happens when he decides to follow God is, is that God tells him to, to, to cut down the idols of his, his own family. And he gets in so much trouble with the whole community that they want to kill him. So it's battle from day one. And now he's about to go against the Midianites and all their allies. And so it becomes very apparent that what Gideon has signed up for when he signed up to be a worshiper of the one true God is battle. Same is true for us. Same is true for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, welcome to the battle. When we do baptisms, we did some baptisms a couple weeks ago. We always, at, at the end of that, we bring all those that have been baptized and we, we gather around them, we lay hands on them, we pray for them. And partly why we're doing that is because we know they're entering the battle. They're, they're now marked. And there, there is a war going on, a spiritual war going on. That before, they were just kind of neutral parties, right? I mean, they, 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 they were enemies of God. They didn't know that. But, but the enemies of their soul, that they were just complicit with those enemies. They, they, they weren't in any sort of battle. They didn't realize they were in a battle. But once they were worshipers of Jesus, now they're in a battle. The New Testament describes the Christian life oftentimes as a battle. 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul says this to Timothy, a young pastor, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He's, he's talking about pastoral ministry, and he's likening it to warfare, to a battle. So expect to be in 
a battle. Number two, expect to be empowered by God's Spirit. Expect to be empowered by God's Spirit. Again, when it describes that the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the East are coming together, it also describes in verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He's being clothed with power to engage in the battle. He's not just left to fend for himself, just, oh, now you're in a battle, Gideon, figure it out. He's given the Holy Spirit of God. This happens over and over in the book of Judges. It's especially revealed in a really powerful way in the life of a guy named Samson, which we'll talk about in future sermons. But here's a couple of, of, of descriptions. Judges 14, 6, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, him being Samson, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. A few verses later, 14:19. then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, gave their clothes, uh, clothes to those who'd explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. That's not usually what we think of when we think of the Spirit-led life. But it is showing that there's an immense amount of power that the Holy Spirit can display in and through a human being. We might even say that Gideon now has superpower, right? Now, our expectation is that now that Gideon is in a battle and he has superpower, that the battle is going to look a little something like, like this. Actually, 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 it's nothing like that. It's actually nothing like that. It, it, it is done in power, but it's not done in a way that draws a whole bunch of attention to the people that are involved in it. That's, that's, that's what we're used to. We're, we're used to people being given power and then a whole lot of attention drawn to them and the superpowers that they have. God is trying to teach Gideon that, that it, it's not about Gideon, right? It's actually about the God of the universe who's working in and through Gideon. He's been talking to Gideon about this throughout chapter 6. He says things to him like, when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you Almighty oh, man of valor. Right? It's like the reason you're a mighty man of valor is because I'm with you. Right? Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And so he's been trying to teach Gideon that this, this is not about you, Gideon. This is, this is not something that's going to draw a, a tremendous amount of attention to you. This is actually my power in and through you. Now, how, how does God do that in and through us? Well, He does it through His Word. Now, this is the, the third thing you can expect. You can expect to be spoken to by God. You're in a battle, you're empowered by a spirit, and you're spoken to by God. The, the, the Bible opens with God speaking, does it not? Like He says, let there be light, and guess what happens? 
there's light. And, and that's consistent throughout the Scriptures. God says something, it happens. 100%, not 99, 100%. This is how He reveals His power in and through people, as He speaks to them His Word, and they obey that Word. And when they do that, that powerful Spirit is able to work in and through them in the battle. And so this one who said, let there be light, and there was light, is saying to Gideon, I am with you. I am with you to go against the Midianites, and we will get rid of the Midianites, right? Like he's saying these words to Gideon. And Gideon's response to that, it's interesting. And if you know anything about Gideon's story, you probably know this this part of the story, right? Verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand. You hear that? God's been saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Like his word is like, I'm going to do it. And Gideon's like, well, I'm not so sure about that, God. If you'll save Israel by my hand, as you've said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's a dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. So Gideon's like, I need a sign. I need a supernatural sign, right? The, the earlier story of the angel coming to him and totally torching his, uh, his sacrifice was a sign. That, that evidently wasn't enough. His success of destroying his, his family's idols, his community's idols, and he doesn't get killed. That, that, that doesn't seem to be enough of a sign for him. The clothing of him by this, the powerful Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be enough of a sign for him. God's history of delivering his people, even from people like the Egyptians, who are way more powerful than Midianites, that just doesn't seem to be enough of a sign for Gideon to believe the word that's being spoken to him. So he wants a sign. Give me a sign. Right? And it's this fleece thing. Put out the fleece, and the fleece gets wet, and the ground gets dry. Then I'll know, God. So what does God do? Verse 38, it was so. It was so. When he rose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. All right, so finally, we got the sign, let's go to war, right? Let's, let's engage in the battle. Not so fast. Gideon says to God, let not your anger burn against me, verse 39. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground, let there be dew. He wants another sign. Evidently, everything that God's done so far is not enough for Gideon, right? The burning up of the sacrifice sign, that wasn't enough. The successful destruction of idols and him living through that, not enough of a sign. The clothing of the Holy Spirit, not enough of a sign. The trick where the fleece was wet and the ground was dry, not enough of a sign. Now he wants wet ground, dry fleece. Then, God, then I will obey your word. And what does God do? Verse 40. And he did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. God's so patient. He's so patient with Gideon. Be encouraged by that, right? We all know what it's like to have the weak faith of Gideon, to read what Scripture says clearly, what's clearly taught, what we should clearly be doing, and to not believe it. And to have weak faith, and for God in His mercy to, 
to, to do something to encourage that faith, he, he's willing to do it. And we see him doing this for Gideon. I was uh, talking to uh, a man who had grown up in Iran as a Muslim. This was actually in Scotland. We were in Scotland visiting my daughter last week. And we were at this little church and uh, met, this, met this man and we were talking and I asked him how he became a Christian. And uh, so he told me his story. And his story was that he had come to Scotland as an immigrant. He was seeking asylum. And he went to immigration and he asked immigration if he could be given asylum and they said no. And they sent him to the court system and the court system put him in prison for three months. And so he was in prison for three months and he was about to be let out and he had three days left in the prison. And he was afraid. He didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know what, what his next step would be. And so he's in a, a cell by himself. He's in the dark. He said it was cold. And he's just praying to God, whoever you are. And Jesus appeared to him in the cell. And in that moment, he knew that he needed to become a follower of Jesus, whatever that meant. And he spent the next two years reading Scripture, talking to Christians, and then eventually became a Christian and was baptized and now a part of a Christian church. Did God have to do that? No. But in his mercy and his patience, he revealed in this supernatural, special, unique way of who he was to this man. Now, sometimes people read this flea story and they think of it as something that's prescriptive, like, I'm going to put out the fleece, right? Like, I'm trying to discern the will of God. I'm going to put out the fleece. I want, a, I want a supernatural sign from God. I, I'm going to be as gentle as I can. That is nonsense, okay? That is nonsense. That, that is not how you apply the Scripture. Gideon is being given this sign because he doesn't even know what the Word says, just like this man who was in this dark cell. He didn't know what the Bible said. He didn't know who Jesus was. Gideon's in the same boat. He's been, he's been raised to worship Baal and Asherah. He doesn't know the Bible. And so God is, is revealing himself supernaturally in a special, unique way. And we who have scripture, who have the word of God, need not put out the fleece. We need to obey the word of God as it's been given to us. So after this fleece experience, Gideon is ready. He's ready. He's finally, he's seen enough, he's experienced enough. He's ready to engage in the battle. And it's a scary battle. I mean, the Midianites now have asked some other people groups to come and join them. And so that enemy is mounting. That battle is getting heated up. And so now we're in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. All right, so, so Gideon's on board. He's like, okay, God, I'm going to trust your word no matter what. And then God says, okay, you've got too many soldiers in your army. God doesn't seem to understand about how battle works, right? Like you get the, as many soldiers as you can and as, the best weapons that you can. You just try to overwhelm your enemy, right? He doesn't seem to understand how this works, right? He seems to have something else in mind regarding this battle. And so he's like, Gideon, we have got to, 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 to get rid of some of these soldiers, all right? And again, this is, this is a window into how God wants to relate with human beings, Right? God says to him that 
I don't want Israel saying, my own hand has saved me. I, I don't want them absorbing my glory. I don't want them to go into battle and win the battle and think, it's me. I want them to think, it's God. And, and this is our default as, as fallen human beings, to be glory absorbers instead of glory reflectors. We were created to be glory reflectors, right? We were created to be in the image of God. That's what that means. We image back who He is, and we give Him glory and praise. Why? Because He actually is the most worthy thing. He is, he's actually infinitely valuable. He actually deserves to be given glory and praise and honor. Not us. But as fallen human beings, we're bent toward absorbing the glory that's meant for God. God knows that. God knows that. God knows that it's our bent as, as fallen human beings to say, my hand has saved me. My hand has saved me, not God's hand. You hear the Apostle Paul describe our predicament in Romans 1. He's describing fallen human beings. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is really at the heart of what it means to to be uh, tainted, to be affected by sin, is that we absorb the glory of God instead of reflecting it back to him. So we work, we play, we, we love, we draw breath in and out of our lungs. And instead of saying, thank you, God, for the grace that you've given me to even breathe breath in and out of my lungs, we say, my hand has done this. My hand has given me this. And it's not glorious for God, and it's not good for us either. Because it's not true. It's not reality. And so God, God's inviting Gideon and the people of God back into reality that God is the one who is worthy to be made much of, right? His fame, His glory is what is to be paramount. And so He sets things up in such a way that we are engaging in the battle from a posture of human weakness. That's so counterintuitive, I know. And it's not like the superhero movie. (laughs) There's no posture of weakness in that battle scene, right? But as as you engage in the battle that you are in as as a Christian, if you are a Christian, you're coming from a posture of weakness. And this is what God is teaching Gideon. So he's saying we've got to, to, to whittle down the numbers of soldiers before we go to battle with this massive force that's against us. Now, how does he do that? Well, verse 3 of chapter 7, we see the first round. He says, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So basically he says, hey, if you're scared, go home. Now this is actually in Deuteronomy. This is actually written down in the Word of God by Moses. And it says, when you go to war, have a conversation with your soldiers and say, if, if you're not full of faith as we go into this, go home. Just go home. Not in a condemning way, not, not, not in a shaming way, 
Just a very matter of fact, if you're afraid, go home. And so a bunch of them go home, right? And there's 10,000 left. 22,000 walk off. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> 32,000 of you standing there. He's like, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000. I'm out of here. I'm done. I didn't want to come to this thing anyway. And then Gideon's standing there looking in the eyes of the 10,000. And they're looking across the river at however many tens of thousands. And then Gideon's going, okay, God, <laughs> this seems weak enough, doesn't it? No. No, it's not. Look what God does next. Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water. I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. The Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his house. So now we've, got, we've gone down from 32,000 to 10,000. Now we're down to 300 water lappers. And I've heard a, a, a lot of teachers and preachers try to make a big deal out of this, like, oh, these were the, the vigilant, the, you know, the people that were very aware of their surroundings. No, I don't think so. I, I think it was just this arbitrary kind of thing. He's like, okay, we're going to take the 300 water lappers. And with these 300 water lappers, we're going to take on the Midianites, right? Now, notice Gideon's going with it. I'm telling you, at this point, he's come to the place where he's like, I'm going to believe the word of God. Whatever he says, I'm going to do it. So if he says, tell 22,000 to go home, if he says to, to, for everyone to go home except for the 300 water lappers, I'm doing it. And so now he's looking in the eyeballs of 300, right? Not many more than in this room and saying, we're going to go to battle against those Midianites and their allies. And again, th this is God's way. Right? This is the thing you can expect if you're going to engage in the battle in, 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 you know, in His name is that you're going to be coming from a posture of human weakness. Right? Yes, in the strength of the powerful spirit, in obedience to the Word of God, yes, but from a posture of human weakness. This is God's way. And why? Again, because it brings glory and honor to Him. And it's good for us to be in that posture, to be in that dependency on God. This is what we were built for. This is what we were made for. This is life. It's counterintuitive. It's paradoxical. I know. But this is what we were built for, is to be in utter dependence on the grace of God through His Spirit and His, His Word. We see this again in the Old Testament and New Testament. You see this. I'll give you a couple, one example, another example in the Old Testament. This prophet's talking to this king, Zerubbabel. I don't know why these, these families did not name any of their sons Zerubbabel. I think that's a great biblical name. So if you're, you're making a list, put Zerubbabel on there. Um, the prophet says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor my, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
That's just a consistent thread throughout the Old Testament in how he empowers his people to go to battle on his behalf. But also in the, in the New Testament. Here you have the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were a pretty prideful church. They thought they were pretty awesome and special and unique. And he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This is God's way. It was the way he started this church. Right? Some guy from Texas shows up, plant a church from scratch in Amherst, Mass, with limited financial resources. And the first people that show up are a bunch of college students. Let's plant a church, right? I mean, that's, that's like a plan that's doomed to fail. But it didn't. It didn't. God showed up. We, we believed what his word said. We preached the gospel that that word proclaims. We prayed. The spirit showed up. People's lives were changed. Like, he showed up. Should it have worked? No. And many a night, I just thought, this is just going to fall. And still, to this day, some days, I'm like, Lord, I don't know if this thing can keep going. But that's, that's his way. It's from a posture of human weakness and the power of the Spirit and obedience to His Word. So if you're here today and you're just thinking, I'm just too weak. My faith is too weak. I don't know if I can take another. You're perfect for the job. You're perfect for the job. But it does require obedience to the Word of God. This, this is what gets Gideon in the game, right? Like he's weak and, and he's insecure and he's worried and he's fearful. But what does he do? He comes to a place, finally, it's messy and it's a process, but he gets to the place where he says, I'm going to obey this word. I'm going to obey what God says. Even if it's crazy, even if it's hard, even if I don't think I have the power to do it because I don't. But I'm trusting that God's spirit will give me the power I need to do it. Those of you in small groups, like last, last week's, uh, section was on quiet time, right? Quiet time. Read your Bible and pray. And for some of you, it might have been like, oh, quiet time. No, we're going to war. We're going to war, right? We got word, we got prayer, we got the Holy Spirit at work. Like th this, is, this is why we're training you, to read your scripture and to prayerfully obey that scripture in the power of the Spirit. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. So he's, he's thinned down the troops. It, it just keeps getting crazier, right? Verse 8, the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel and every man back to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So now they're being given their weapons. He's like, line up, we're going to give you weapons. Come on, 300. Trumpet, trumpet, trumpet. Tr like, don't we have any swords? You know, like, where's the spear brigade? Like, no, trumpets. And later on, they'll be given torches. Trumpets and torches. This is awesome, right? So we've gone from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300, and now we're going to fight with trumpets and torches. This is God's way. This is God's way. 
to, to, to engage in a battle in the power of the Spirit and obedience to His Word from a place of human weakness. Right? What does this have to do with any of us? Right? I, obviously, it has a lot to do with us. We're in a battle. If you're a Christ follower, you're in a battle. Now, it doesn't, there's no swords, there's no spears, bombs. It's not that kind of battle. We're not trying to take geographical land. Right? That, that, that's a type pointing forward to a greater battle, the battle that we're in. We're actually in a battle for the hearts and lives of people. We're not just trying to get the Midianites out of our real estate. We're trying to get the Midianites to worship Jesus. That's the conquest that we're on. That's much harder than trying to move them out of the real estate. It's for their hearts to truly bow and worship to the one true God. That's that's the conquest that we're on, much harder than what the Israelites were given against the Midianites. And again, how do we, how do, we do that? The Word of God proclaimed in the power of the Spirit of God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about the Word as an offensive weapon. He says, Ephesians 6, he's, he just talked about all this armor, right, that's defensive, and he finishes up that armor in verse 17 of Ephesians 6. He says, take the helmet of salvation. So that's the last defensive piece. And then he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He's teaching them how to wage spiritual war. And the way they do it is word and prayer. That's how the conquest happens. That's how hearts bow in worship of Jesus, is that they experience the word and the power of the Spirit. Right? And how do we do that? We prayerfully proclaim that word, the word part. You see, those, you see those phrases there? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Later in 19, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Later in 20, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Right? He's, he's saying the Word of God. It, 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 it is the weapon that we've been given such that human hearts could bow in true worship of Jesus Christ. But then woven in there is a lot of verses about prayer, right? Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. And so this prayerful proclamation of the Word of God is how this battle is fought. We're fighting a battle right now, right? We've, we've prayed we're proclaiming through these songs that we've sung. I'm proclaiming right now. This, it's all-out battle right now for your hearts. And so for, for some of you, it, 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 you're already a Christian, but, but there's pieces of your life and heart that haven't quite submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. We're, we're battling for those parts of your heart. For others, you, you've never bowed to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never received His salvation and become one of His children and, and, and become His follower. And I'm hoping you will today, that you'll receive His forgiveness and you'll become one of His children, one of His subjects in His kingdom. And so this, again, this conquest isn't happening via swords and 
spears. It's happening via the prayerful proclamation of the, the Word of God. And it might be helpful to think of it like a spear. I'm stealing this from John Piper, who talks about word and prayer in working together. And so if you think about the word or the gospel as the tip of the spear, you can only do so much with just if you're just holding the tip of the spear. But if you have a shaft in that tip and it becomes a spear, suddenly it has a whole lot more leverage, a whole lot more power. And you think of prayer like this as a shaft. And as we prayerfully proclaim the Holy Spirit shows up and empowers that word such that it penetrates the hearts and lives of people and causes them to be changed, causes them to become true worshipers of Jesus. This is what we've been doing for 19 years. 19 years. This is what we came to, to start the church, to, to battle for the hearts and lives of people. Now, that battle, there's kind of two fronts, right? There's the battle in our own heart, and there's the battle in the hearts and lives of others. What weapon do you use? You use the same weapon for both. Word and prayer, right? And so those places in your heart where they've not yet submitted to Christ, you're, you're using the word and prayer to, to, to work out those things such that they bow the knee to Christ as Lord. And you're using that word in prayer in the lives of others so they can come to understand who Jesus is. They can respond in saving faith to what Christ has done for them. This is the call for all Christians. This is the call for all Christians. Again, this is why we're teaching you in discipleship groups about how to have a quiet time, how to read your Bible, how to pray. It's not just what Christians do. There's a war going on. And we're training you to engage in that battle, both in your own soul and your own families, right? So those parents with those little cherubs standing up here, I got some good news and some bad news, right? Some good news is that those are gifts from the Lord. The bad news is they're all sinners. I know it's hard to believe unless you're their parent and then you know they're sinners. But every day you're getting up and you're going to battle, not with the kid, but for their heart, their heart has not yet become a, a worshiping heart of the one true God, Jesus Christ. They haven't gotten there yet. And so you're getting up with word and prayer, and you're going to battle for their hearts. And it's the most important thing for any parent that, that, that those kids understand the gospel and respond with saving faith. When we have persist prayer on Friday night, we'll be here, right here. We'll be praying. We're not just having a sweet little prayer meeting, little church prayer meeting. We're going to war. We're going to battle. I was having a conversation with one of the men of our church, and, and uh, he, he loves prayer, and he's a faithful prayer warrior. And he was like, why, don't, why do you think most men don't seem to show up for prayer stuff? Like, it's mostly the ladies, right? And we're grateful, right? We're grateful. We have some prayer warrior women that are in this church. And he, and he was asking this question, and then he kind of answered it. He, he said, uh, I, the reason the men don't show up, I don't think they realize we're going to war when we gather for prayer. I said, I think you're right. I think they think, oh, that's cute. That's what women do, whatever. Like, come on. You're missing out. Women are over here going to war. Right? And there, there's this opportunity to engage in the battle through prayer and word. And again, if if, if you're listening to this and, and you're not a Christian and, 
you're like, I, I think I want to engage in that. I want to be in a battle that, that means something. I, I want to come under the banner of the one true God. Then receive what Christ has done for you on the cross. This is something that, that we role play every time we come to this table and we do something called communion. We're reminded of the greatest warrior of all time, Jesus Christ. He was going to battle against the most fright-filled enemies of all time, sin, death, and hell. And he went to war against those enemies. And in order to do that, he had to lay down his own life. That's what warriors do. They lay down their lives for victory. And so he uh, role plays that with his disciples on the night in which he is betrayed, the night before his death, and he takes bread, he breaks it. He gives it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body broken for you, right? He's letting them know, I'm going to engage in the battle on the next day, and I'm going to let them break me, right? That doesn't, that's not usual warrior language, but he knew he was going to have to go. God himself, from a posture of weakness, so weak that he would even submit to human death, but he knew that would be the only way to win the battle for our hearts and lives. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He knew not only would he be broken, but his very life poured out in order to bring us to safety, right? out of the clutches of the enemy of sin, death, and hell. And he did that. He did that. And this is what this word proclaims, right? When we say that the, the, we're going to proclaim the word, that th this is the heart of the word, is what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so again, if you've not yet received that as your only hope, as your only salvation this morning, I would encourage you to do that, or at the very least, talk to somebody about it and say, what would, what would that look like if I was to become a Christian? I'd, I'd love to have that conversation. Many others in the room that you may know that are Christians would love to have that conversation. But for those of us that are Christ followers, to be encouraged to engage in the battle that's before us, right? the battle that's to be fought in the power of the Spirit, in obedience to the Word of God from a place of human weakness. And the one who shows us that in the perfect way is Jesus himself. Right? So let's go to war. Let's pray. God, thank you that you went to battle for us. That while we were still sinners, we were still rejecting you and not interested at all. You were dying in our place so that we could be rescued and saved. And so as we see you, the, 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 the ultimate warrior in the spiritual realm on our behalf, lay down his life. For us, so we could be forgiven and brought back into relationship with you, Lord. May, may that cause us to be encouraged that we, like Gideon, who are weak, but through the Spirit in obedience to the Word, are strong. God, in that strength, that it would be for your glory. That we would not say, our hand has saved us, but that we would know that 100% your hand has saved us. 
and that you've done that through the cross and that we would then go out and prayerfully proclaim that to a world who is in desperate need of being conquered. So bless this time, Lord. Bless the the bread, the, the cup, our time together in prayer. Just be at work in this room. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a Christ follower,